I'm turning now to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament, chapter 29 and verse 4. Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, where Moses utters these words to the children of Israel, Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear, unto this day. And our subject is how to connect with Almighty God. Moses appeals to the people. They're at the end of their period of some 40 years in the wilderness. These are people who have seen amazing things. They've seen great demonstrations of the power of God in their deliverance from Egypt and subsequently. They had been maintained and provided for in all these years. They were people who had benefited so much from things that could not be explained except that they were done, performed by the hand of God. And yet Moses tells them this. This is one of the final messages to the children of Israel preached by Moses and we're going back some three and a half thousand years. And yet the words here stand today. They're just as applicable to us today as they were to the children of Israel so very long ago. Here they are. Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. What you're looking at is a remarkably profound statement of the signs or the marks of a dead soul, of an inert, dormant soul. Dormant would probably be a better word than dead. The soul is never entirely dead. It can be aroused. It can be brought into activity by the blessing and power of God but it is as though it is dead, asleep, non-operational, not functioning toward God. The soul, the spirit, that faculty in every man and woman which enables communion with God, which enables prayer, the faculty by which we have some sense and awareness of the being of God and can reach to him and can understand him. A mysterious faculty, if you were to uh, be uh, someone able to dissect the human brain, you wouldn't be able to find it. The soul is a mysterious entity. It uses the brain It uses our faculties and our minds, and yet it's something undiscoverable and invisible to us. But the soul, is it active? It's the highest part of you. It's the most important part of you. It's the eternal aspect of you. Is it not functioning? Are we only, dare I put it this way, it's very inadequate, Are we only half people? Because what God intended us for and created us for 
communion with himself, awareness of him, receiving guidance and help and power from him, that faculty is dormant and inactive. There's so much missing from us. And it's this which Moses describes, yet the Lord has not given you an heart to perceive, eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. Over all these years of demonstrations by God of his goodness and kindness and power, after all the teaching and the explaining, after all the advantages that you've had, you still don't have these three things. And we're going to glance at them this evening. And heart to perceive, the first thing that Moses particularly mentions. What's the state of the soul? Do our souls function? Are we capable of paying homage to God? Of inquiring after him? Of learning from him? Of receiving blessing and power from him? Or is communication dead? The soul is inert. Well, the first indication, the first sign of the dormant or dead soul is just this. An heart to perceive. That means they had no desire for God. An heart to perceive. No desire, no need, no longing, no wanting of him. That was certainly true of me early in life. No concern about God whatsoever. No hearts to perceive. Oh, I heard things about God in those far-off days. Things were taught the in school, and other occasions, in church, you heard much, but it all went in one ear and out of the other. There was no heart to perceive, no interest, no need, not drawn in the slightest. That's a sign of a dead soul. No concern, not bothered, not interested. It's... Uh, we read of an incident in the life of William Wilberforce, who was so used years ago in the abolition of the slave trade. And he was a great friend of John Newton. And when a resident in London, he would worship at John Newton's church. At that time, John Newton, the former slave trader, who was converted and became a very famous clergyman and writer, Books are still in print to this day, and we sing many of his hymns. Well, John Newton was the uh, rector of St. Mary Woolnoth in the city, just across the river. And Wilberforce used to go and worship there. And one day he took another of his friends, William Pitt the Younger, who was Prime Minister. And this would be about the year 1800, time of the Act of Union and all that. And... Uh, he took him to hear Newton. And Wilberforce, after the service was ended, was ecstatic. The sermon he found so illuminating and profound and moving and effective. 
But William Pitt the Younger, the Prime Minister, turned to him and said, My dear Wilberforce, I cannot see what you get from this, what you derive from this. I've never been so bored in my life. Words to that effect. No heart to perceive. No interest to stir you. No inclination whatsoever. The first mark of a dead or a dormant soul. That's serious. What a condition to be in. I remember it. Many of you who have even become Christians also, you remember that time where there was no inclination whatsoever. The soul was inert and inactive and dead. What a state to be in. I read of a tragic situation in the Far East of a whole group of people who were celebrating some sort of anniversary in a, in a cafe and they were uh, enjoying themselves and reminiscing, speaking together and uh, they didn't know that the location of this particular cafe just behind the building front along a shoreline, a coastline they didn't know about the tidal wave that was coming in the tsunami that would engulf them all in 30, 40 feet of water in no time, and they all perished. Well, I'm sorry to bring that up, but that's what it's like to have no inclination, no concern, shut into the here and now, make the best of this life and material things. All our hopes and aspirations are here, and we behave as though there's no God no spiritual realm, no eternity. But there's a, a reckoning coming and a judgment coming. It's a tragic state to be in. It's a limited state. We're so limited. There's an old illustration often used. It's rather like being goldfish in a bowl. And there they are swimming about happily, but they can't get out of that bowl. And they don't know anything about, they have no experience as to what the world is like outside that bowl. They're limited, they're confined. And that's what it's like to have your soul inert and to not know God and to not know the purpose of life and to not walk with him and to not have uh, eternal prospects to be closed in to a limited environment. We don't know our condition, we don't grasp it, we don't understand anything outside the physical realm. And heart to perceive, oh, pray to God to give you a sense of urgency, an inclination, if this is the case, pray to him to help you. He will. There's an illustration I often use, you know. It's something you'll never find. You can go down the high street and you can look in the shop windows and you'll see goods displayed. Let's say you're looking at the expensive shops and they're things that are completely out of your reach, which you couldn't afford. But here's one. And there's a notice in that window. 
and it says something along these lines, and I guarantee you'll never see this. If you can't afford this item, come in and ask for the money. And that's the heart of God. If you have no inclination, no urgency, no desire, then call upon him to give those things to you. And in his great mercy, he will. In his wonderful kindness, he'll open your horizons and give you a thirst and a longing to know and to find him. That's the beginning, friends, of a spiritual journey. He'll teach you the urgency of it, the depth of your need, the price he's paid to secure your forgiveness and salvation. He'll reveal these things and you'll find you want to call upon him and you can trust him and you can believe in him and you'll come to him. Yet the Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive. Cry out for it. And eyes to see. Oh, that's understanding. To see it, to grasp it. You come to a point, one moment you're not interested in God, then the questions begin to come into your mind. What if? What if he is there? And these questions are encouraged by your instinct, because although the soul is dormant, and we don't want God and we're against him, yet strangely, and it's a little contradictory, but strangely, We do have an instinct for him. Everyone has that. And that instinct helps you. And the questions come into your mind. What if God, can he be known? Can I find him? What does he want of me? What am I here for? What will he do for me? How might I approach him? These questions begin to come. And you thirst for the answer. You shouldn't see it. Why, the Bible doesn't make any sense to me, you think. I've heard messages. I've read books. I've had friends speak to me about finding God. But it doesn't mean much to me. But now, because you're inclined, because you want to know, because you've got a heart to perceive, now by the blessing of God, things suddenly fall into place. And you understand. And you say, why didn't I see this before? That Christ came into this world. Who is God? Second person of the Godhead. And he came into this world and assumed a human body and personality and became our representative and came in order to suffer and die on Calvary's cross, where God the Father would put upon him all the guilt of all those who would ever be forgiven in the history of the world and punish him instead of us. And he, in six hours or so, would take that eternal weight of punishment for millions and millions of people compressed into that time 
invisibly, suffering separation from his father, suffering so deeply to purchase the right to forgive us. Why didn't I see before the substitutionary atoning death of Christ, the key to everything that he suffered and died for a sinner like me? And it becomes plain, and you grasp that it was the only way, even for God. Because God is so holy, he cannot just make sin disappear and let it go. He cannot turn his back on it as though it had never happened. He cannot sweep it under the carpet. He cannot ignore it. In his eternal, infinite, holy nature, he must show his indignation against sin and destroy it by punishment. That is the only way. So how can he forgive us? Only by coming himself and suffering himself. You used to say, oh, all religions are the same, but there's only one with a saviour. There's only one with a sin-bearer. There's only one with an atonement, a sacrifice for sinners to satisfy the holiness and the justice of Almighty God so that God can be just and forgiving at the same time. And when you see that, because you're inclined, oh, that makes all the difference. In ignorance of these things, the soul is inert and non-operational. Do you see? Do you want to see? Do you grasp it, friends? Does it move you? Can you see the astonishing character of it? That your creator, who you've wronged, who you've spurned, who you've dismissed, who you've ignored, came to suffer for you? Out of amazing love? What's this love? What is there to love in us? What could he possibly love in us? Before we're saved, before we're converted to him, we're sinners through and through. We're sly, we're deceitful, we're proud, we're greedy, we're sometimes violent, uncruelly unkind, all sorts of things wrong. How can he love us? Oh, the love of God is amazing. He loves us in terms of pity and compassion. He feels for us. This man, this woman, young or old, throwing his or her life away, walking, sleepwalking into judgment and everlasting loss. This young person, this older person, on the very brink of death, careless and indifferent, about to suffer. And God pities us. He pitied this lost world. 
And then he loves what he's going to make out of us. If I draw that man, that woman to myself in my great pity and I forgive them and I save them, I will remake that person and I will put in him or her things I can really love and embrace and bless and help. That's the love of God. It pities and it looks to the future what he will do with us. Well, we see that sometimes in the world of craftsmen. The craftsman takes what it is, an ugly lump of clay. But in his heart is what he will ultimately do with it. And that's the love of God and how he crafts us and deals with us. We come to him and find him and he converts us and gives us life and blessing, brings us to walk with him, makes us his children. We're still sinners. We're better than we were, but we're still very much sinners fighting against sin. But all the while, there are new characteristics formed in us. And I've been ministering now for just on 60 years this year. Another church before here and here for over 50 years. Dear friends, I've seen so many people change. Violent people become gentle. Mean people become generous. Hating people become kind people. Completely insensitive people gain sensitivities and understanding and thoughtfulness. Trivial people become profound people. When God works in lives, it's wonderful what he does and how he changes us. Without him, we're victims to our sinful natures and we get worse and worse as time goes by. You're a slave to your sinful nature until you come to God. But here are the signs of the dead soul in this fourth verse. The Lord hath not given you, pray for this, and heart to perceive, and eyes to see, understanding of the way of salvation. And the third one here is, and ears to hear. What does that mean? Well, it's simple. A response to God. The eyes to see. You understand the way of salvation. Christ has come, suffered and died. If I trust in him and run to him and give my life to him and repent of my sin, he will embrace me and change me and take me up. Now, ears to hear. Will I do it? Have I ears to hear? The call of Christ, the command to repent, the invitation to stoop down and drink and live of the fountain of grace and receive new life and the companionship of Almighty God. Will I hear and obey? That's the implication. The three things. If the soul is dead, I'll never obey God. I'll never respond. 
I'll never repent. I'll never give him my life and hand it over to him. I'll never trust him. I won't do it. There's no obedience in me. But if the soul is brought to life, I hear his call and my heart melts and I respond and I repent of my sinful life and I trust in Christ who is infallible to change me and I trust in what he's done in bearing away my sin on my behalf if I trust him and I can do it. I hear and I obey. Friends, you've got a moral need. All of us have it. A moral need of the forgiveness of God and power over sin. You desperately need it from God. Forgiveness and strength to resist sin. You know it at times. Sometimes, especially before we converted, terrible things have been said. Great fracture between husband and wife, friend and friend, parent and child. Human nature can be so spiteful and unkind. People hurting each other. And sometimes you've said to yourself, I wish I didn't lose my temper. I wish I wasn't like this. If I could be different and this had never happened. But you can't. And maybe once or twice you'll control it, but you'll slip back and it'll get worse. Sin will increasingly have mastery over you. And you'll be more guilty before God. You have a moral need for the cleansing away of every sin you've ever committed and for strength to get on top of sinful traits and tendencies. You have a mental need. Before you come to Christ, you can't answer the big questions. Why am I here? What is life about? What is it all for? Sometimes if you get very depressed or sad, you've had a great disappointment, it weighs on you very hard. You normally brush these questions aside. What am I here for? What is the meaning of my life? Even can I go on? You've got a mental need. That mental need, intellectual need, is satisfied when you come to Christ. Now I've found God. I've found the Saviour. I know the meaning of my life. I'm a created being, made by him, for him, for eternity with him. He is my helper and my Saviour and my Lord. He gives me a new value system. I learn from his word. I walk with him. I lay all my troubles at his feet. All the big whys of life. Why this? Why that? My intellectual, mental question is answered when I come to Christ. Yes, you've got a moral need 
a mental need, a spiritual need, great needs, come to him, friends. The Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive, pray for that, and eyes to see, may you see the way of salvation through Christ the Lord, and ears to hear and obey and respond urgently, sincerely, wholly, and you will be saved. And you will be a new person. And you will be a child of God. And you'll walk with him. Dear friends, come to him. Don't go on with a non-operational, sleeping, dormant, inactive soul. Come to Christ the Lord and find your all in all in him. Let's pray. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us now. Teach us, O Lord, in mind and heart. Draw us to thyself. Save souls, we pray, that Christ may be ours, that we may be his, that he may get the glory. We ask it in his name, for his sake. Amen.